from the West Branch Studios in Davidson, North Carolina. Welcome to Dump the Clutch with your host, Brad Zimmerman. How do I address you? Professor Chambers? However you want, but you can call me Andy. It's okay. So. So we... We first met through your husband, Matt, when yeah. Matt and I worked at Ganassi, and he now works for Stuart Haas. Yes. And then you, I think you already had a relationship with a couple people upstairs, like John Olgeen, and mm-hmm. um, and then uh, you called to ask us, a handful of people, to come speak because you um, were one of the folks that were instrumental with the motorsports program at Belmont Abbey. Yes. Which was like, there's not too many of those in the country at all. No, there's not. Yep. None that do, well, yeah, there's maybe one or two. <laughs> yeah. If that. And I, I mean, I think you already know this. I love doing that. And I, it, was, uh, it wasn't the intro classes. I think it was like the 200-ish classes uh-huh. where um, they were more dialed in. Uh, at that point, they knew they were well, going to... you didn't scare the crap out of the freshmen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you did. Half you the freshmen were there. asleep when I was talking. <laughs> Then but, you just cussed and then woke them up a little yes, bit. Yes, right? but I really enjoyed that. It was fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, I'll have to bring you back yeah. to where I'm at. And it was no notes. And I really, I, my favorite part was uh, just having everyone go around the room and ask me a question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, you can't get it wrong because it's my opinion. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I just think at the end of the day, for me, especially for kids at that age, if you can't make them think, you're just wasting time. Because if you lobby it right back to them and then their wheels start turning and it's like, oh, I didn't think about that. That's like what I live off of. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's my juice. Yep. Well, um, you're good at that. You're good at getting people to think. And I've always appreciated, one of the things I've appreciated about you is your creativity and your ideas. You are always coming up with... Crazy ideas. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Yeah. So. Uh, okay. So from the beginning, you have had yeah. a pretty detailed, um, professionally speaking, a pretty detailed uh, background in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Olympic. And then within the Olympic, you know, I think I saw canoe, wrestling, bas- no, not basketball. I was more professional. Mm-hmm. So t- give me a quick little elevator speech of your professional background up until today. Well, I have I, I celebrated a milestone. What? On January twenty sixth was my twenty fifth anniversary in sports. Oh, cool. So I was pretty excited about that. But um going back to the beginning, oh Lord. Um <laughs> I interned for um the US Olympic Committee. Uh-huh. Now the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Uh, I worked for USA Wrestling and had a ball. It was a lot of fun. Um, I did that while I was getting my master's at Bowling Green State University in BG, Ohio. Uh, from there, I was a marketing director for an LPGA golf tournament in um, Sylvania, Ohio, booming metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, ran press conferences for eight sports during the 1996 Olympic Games, so mm-hmm. wound back through, volunteered there while I was at in the golf tournament or right after the one of the years the tournament ended um spent three years there um needed a bigger bubble so i um, moved to detroit and worked for the detroit pistons and palace sports and entertainment Mm -hmm. 
for several years. Um, they had the Pistons, um, the Vipers, which was a minor league hockey team. They started an arena football team. Um, the uh, Shock, which was WNBA. They had the Palace of Auburn Hills and two outdoor amphitheaters. And I sold sponsorships and media across all those properties in yep. Detroit. And then I met Matt and he swept me off my feet. And where did you guys meet? Uh, was it in Detroit? It's actually, it's a pretty funny story. So, <laughs> um, so Matt and I went to high school together. Oh, really? Matt, okay. Matt's two years younger than me. Uh-huh. His mom was my eighth grade science teacher. Oh, wow. His brother was in sports and I was a cheerleader. So I had a big mouth back then and it <laughs> hasn't changed. So, um, so yeah, I knew him, but he he's two years younger than me. So uh-huh. we... So if you'd have told me in high school, there's your mother-in-law, there's your brother-in-law, and there's your future husband, I'd have run <laughs> screaming from the building. But yeah. um, thankfully, we met uh, back uh, about 10 years after I graduated from high school. And um, we were, uh, I, I went did my undergrad at Kentucky, mm-hmm. and I was planning a girls' weekend with one of my sorority sisters in Cincinnati, Ohio, yeah. and Matt happened to be in Cincinnati for, um, he was the best man in his, one of his best friend's wedding, mm-hmm. and we ran into each other at a Have a Nice Day Cafe, oh, and wow. um, I walked up to him, or he was talking with my my uh, sorority sister, and she asked him what his name was right as I walked up, and I said, his name is Matt Chambers, he's from Bowling Green, Ohio, his mom <laughs> teaches science, and he has a brother named Rob, and Matt looked at me turned sheet white and he was like holy crap who are you and it's funny because he was working for jack roush mm-hmm. uh, okay. program up in livonia yep so i and i was up in detroit at that time so we ended up it was we were we, we lived 15 miles from each other yeah, and well. so we started hanging out and um he was um kurt bush's crew chief when kurt first joined uh, the truck series yep and when Kurt's opportunity came to move to Charlotte, uh, Matt asked me to follow him. So oh, okay. I did, and mm-hmm. we've been here for almost 20 years. And that so. was mid-90s, early 90s? No, we, uh, Matt came here in uh, 2000, and I showed up in April of 01. Okay, well. So, so then prior to high school, or maybe it was in high school, why sports for you? Why did you decide to go down a professional path in sports? Well, um, what was the draw? I was in, when I was in college, I was a communications major with marketing and journalism electives. And I knew I wanted to go into fitness, health, or sports. And by process of elimination, I narrowed it down to sports. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I graduated, uh, I had done an internship with a hospital, and I had fun with that. I was working for the um, uh, athletics department, the recreation um, and athletics at UK, mm-hmm. and um, and then I graduated, and I said, "Okay, I'm ready for my job now." And everyone said, "There's the end of the line," you yep. know. And I had no idea about how to find a job, so. It took me about two years, but I was given an opportunity to 
um, do some uh, media buying for uh, an ice skating show for an Olympic skater that came back to BG and did a fundraiser. And I said, how do I do this? This is so much fun. It was like a spark that clicked and everyone said, you need to go back to school to get a sport management degree. And that's when, it, once I um, went to BG for my master's, it was lights out, let's go. And what what did you, f- what, what was fun about it? Was it the creative part? Was it the execution part? Was it the... Um, I felt like I was throwing a party for 6,000 people. And yep. I was, I really enjoyed the entertainment part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I was up, Palace Sports and Entertainment, um, the concerts and all the activities. It mm-hmm. was just always something to do, places to go, people to see. It was different. It was new. Right. You could because sports has a has a truly universal appeal. You're talking to tea tiny kids to eighty year old old farts. So mm-hmm. it's it it really and you know that's truly I think been my Path in terms of sports because you know when I moved to Charlotte I I worked for the Checkers the Charlotte Checkers organization and uh, ran press com- or ran, ran their sponsorship department there for a couple years um, when the Whitewater Center came to Charlotte I threw my name in the hat because it brought with it the U.S. Olympic canoe kayak mm-hmm. um, team and then um, when when Matt and I decided to start a family, I curtsied and exited side stage for about eight years. And while I was off the market, if you will, um, Matt and I started our own race team and we ran uh, arrive and drive uh, for IMSA. At the time it was Grand Am, but mm-hmm. we ran uh, in the Continental Tire Series. Yep. So I, I just like different, I like, you know, um, I have really enjoyed the variety of people that I've met. One of the things that have been most appealing to me that I keep coming back to with the Olympics um, is just the diversity of people that I encounter. Just mm-hmm. it, it just is a lot of fun. So. And then, so when you go from a professional sports background and you're in it, what is the light switch that makes you go from in it to teaching it? Uh, it's called being a mom and yep. having a children um, <laughs> those, <laughs> d- those damn kids <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it you know when i was when you're working with uh well i wasn't with matt was traveling so when i was pregnant and getting ready to deliver erica my first um you know matt was still traveling And I can remember being completely freaked out thinking, okay, how the heck is this going to work? Meaning physically, (laughs) having the crap scared out of me here. And uh, Matt was like, okay, well, I'm going to Homestead and I'll see you. I'll be back. And the doctor is looking at him and he's like, yeah, you're you're not going anywhere. So from Phoenix on through the end of the season of the year Erica was born, 2004, Matt was home. And he was a crew chief, so he's having to find... Uh, replacement people you know and so something had to give in terms of um, and so I um, felt very strongly about staying home with the girls and so when I stayed home until um, my youngest Aaron uh, started 
kindergarten. Yeah. And that's when I reinvented my love for sport. Yeah. Because now when somebody gets the throw ups, I can have life happen and not have somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, tapping their watch at me or yeah. sponsors that are going ape doo doo because they're, you know, stuff's not figured yeah. out. So it, it's a lot more, academe is a lot more family friendly. And I didn't really realize this, but I'm kind of an academic geek. I yeah. really enjoy the. So, do, do you think you enjoy teaching it as opposed to working in it? Or have you. I like both. Yeah. I mean, I have very fond memories. I mean, my. I think the, the my favorite job ever was when I was at the palace because I was just telling somebody this not even an hour ago the opportunities that, that were available at Palace Sports and Entertainment to just go and do and see. I saw more concerts in the couple years I was there than probably 20 people see in a lifetime. Yeah. And just the world-class caliber of that, um, it was so much fun. And like Matt was, he was crew chiefing at the time, and so he would have fun come into the um, basketball games and he'd sit behind the bench just to listen to the the dynamics of how the coaches were interacting with the players so oh. that he could learn a little bit more about um, you know how to communicate and working in, in, he's always done really well in those types of things but what right. I'm saying is he's seeing those applications in a different sport so I was able to bring my friends along and my family along to those types of, of opportunities. And, you know, when, when Erin and Erica came along, it, I fell in love with two other little human beings that, yep. you know, it, and it's really hard to juggle both when yep. you have two people that have very demanding sport jobs. Mm -hmm. so. And so I know you are started a new... Um, endeavor uh teaching but i want to uh -huh. save that for the end okay so but just in general whether it's motorsports or traditional stick and ball sports like over the past god it almost seems like five maybe ten years like what is the thing that you have seen that has really grabbed your attention whether it's a introduction of technology or how a sport has drastically changed or how it's consumed um, the level of athleticism, like, is there, what, what is the thing that you look at and you're like, man, that when I got in it in the nineties, it wasn't even at that level. Well, I think the most dramatic, um, change, the disruptive change that's happened is technology yep. for sure. Um, because it is completely changing every single part and piece of how, every facet of business functions. It changes how we find people from an HR standpoint. It, it has changed how we generate money from a financial standpoint. It has completely changed how we communicate. The fact that, you know, podcasts didn't even exist. I mean, email didn't even exist when I first started. Yeah. I, when I went to the, my opportunity at the Pistons came because I FedExed my resume because faxing and, and email didn't even exist, you know? So, um, I mean, you have so many different platforms for people to consume the product. It's made it a lot more competitive uh, for the different um, entertainment options. And you just have so much, when you have that many more choices, 
as a consumer, it, it causes the producer, meaning the sport teams and the sport organizations, to have to hire people like you right. who have wonderful ideas yep. and coming up with. So I would say that, you know, the technology has been the most disruptive change. Yeah. I totally agree with technology. Um, and so when we first started talking, um, we were in the motorsports world. Yeah. And that is almost all based on sponsorship dollars. And a lot of your previous background is almost the opposite, where sponsorship is still critical, but it's it's not like it's either that or nothing. It's icing on the cake. Icing on the cake. Um, do you see, because we're sitting in Charlotte and you know your husband still works in the race team, do you ever see um, a sponsorship-based model like motorsports changing to adapt quickly? Or are there too many tentacles involved with TV and rights holders and teams and personalities that it just can't happen. Cause yeah. I personally think about this like just about every day. Yeah. I mean, I think that sports in general and motorsports um, is no different. They are looking for ancillary sources of revenue, whether it's, you know, in addition to, the race itself, you see the financial model changing because of, you know, from the from the um, single title sponsor to the uh, more of an Olympic top sponsor yep. model. Um, I mean, I think, well, from what I've seen recently, um, NASCAR is beginning to uh, look at possible uh, ticket mandates in terms of ticket sales minimums for the racetracks. Mm -hmm. um, so they are wanting, I mean, for the last 20 years since NASCAR landed their uh, TV deal, yep. there's been a pretty big cushion for the racetracks to not necessarily, they, they've, they've, they've had... They've had a cushion and breathing room is probably the best way to put it in terms of uh, with their ticket sales. So because the the media dollars are they come with relatively little bottom line. You know you, you don't have to have uh, beer and food and yeah. all the stuff that goes along you, for the broadcast. You have the equipment obviously, but other yeah. than that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's been, um, I think that news came out last week and that's mm -hmm. been a pretty hot topic, at least on social media and people yeah. debating it and a lot of fans questioning it because I think the fans are still kind of in the dark when it comes to the business side of it. But, yeah. and, but it brings up a good point because now that ISC and SMI have gone back private and NASCAR, I believe NASCAR is the one mandating that they're going to have to have attendance minimums, yeah. more or less. And if not, they're going to get fined. So in theory, they're going to find they're going to find themselves. <laughs> so what do you think your what what is your opinion of the backstory? Like, what does that really mean? Like, I know they want more people to go to races, but if they have half their tracks say, you know what, we needed fifty and you had thirty eight thousand, what then what? That's that's a good question. You're asking all these hard questions, Fred. And I, I, I just don't have my magic wand. Um, I think that they're trying to perhaps coerce um, different, um, you know, behaviors. Yep. 
Um, they're trying to regulate those types of things, which, um, you know, it, I don't, well, may, I don't know, maybe they, maybe they, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, start stirring up a pile of this is, this is all your opinion, so yeah. you can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, that in a buck and a half will buy me a cup of coffee down the street, right? So, well, I mean, I think that the, the issues that are happening within NASCAR and within motorsports are not unique. I mean, NASCAR has gotten beaten up pretty bad in the last couple years about, oh, your audience is going down. Well, you look at... Uh, stories that are hitting from last week and Major League Baseball attendance has, has gone down or all these different um, I mean the NFL took a hit granted that yep. some of that stuff might have been politically motivated right. yep. or you know those types of things but these issues that NASCAR is dealing with is not unique to NASCAR or motorsports it is happening across the board that all sport properties are having to reinvent themselves in order to uh, connect with this new crop of people that are growing up that are digital natives they mm -hmm. they want to experience sport in different ways um, they are very much um, fascinated intrigued by technology much at times to my dismay yep. in the classroom i'm trying to get them to disengage from phones and yep. pay attention i i'm standing up here you know <laughs> not talking to myself you know um so but and it, it's it's something that us old farts are not because we didn't grow up with it we're, we're having to create new products in yep. in a very it's a very off balance has been an off balance time in terms of those types of yeah. things yeah so. and i i think you're spot on i like just the other day i saw the um i um i'm not a huge nba fan i do i i'm fascinated with zion williamson but previous to that i was really into the nba like when i was in junior high and high school when it was the celtics and mm -hmm. the lakers and like to me that was like the best basketball ever you know, we're all a fan of Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. but um, I think NBA from a cultural standpoint is like in the thick of it. They've announced some pretty cool partnerships lately and their TV ratings are down. And to me and you initially, that may sound like, oh, wow, like what's what's the fluff that they're putting out there? But there's no fluff. They're just not watching on television. Um, you know, House of Highlights on Instagram, they're they they do all sports highlights but it was built mostly on nba highlights mm -hmm. and a fast break and a dunk is four seconds and that's that's built for the attention span of people as you as you said you know digital natives yep. and they get millions and millions of hits a week or views and that's where the new value is mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily on tv it's, and yeah but again getting people to understand that is one thing and then to make the dollars make sense which i think is the sticking point where racing is as a whole because i think if you try hard actually probably not even try hard if you have a good product you're going to attract an audience right. motorsports little sticking point is that the cost it's so expensive are you going to be able to generate enough attention and enough audience to squeeze the sponsor dollars out to help pay for your sport right and well, that's the nature of owning a, a uh, race team the overhead and the the what you the capital that's required in order to 
fund the initiative is enormous. And, and that's coming from you who owned a, it was a Honda Civic. You had a couple Civics. We did. Yep. And that's, and to you, that was like, it, that thing might as well have been $10 million because it's so like, it doesn't matter what level of racing you do. It like, was, yeah, it, it, exactly. I mean, so, but I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the thing about, well, and if you, if you think about how the, with the charter and with the RTA, all of those initiatives, um, people are talking about, publicly, uh, you know, we're trying to work on collaborating so that we're reducing costs and working together in order to um, streamline processes, you know, with the, um, there are changes um, coming mm -hmm. with, the, uh, with the race new car, car. Yep. Um, you know, there are, it's, there's a lot of stuff coming. There's a lot and of stuff I, coming. I'm trying to figure out, <laughs> full disclosure, you may need to like edit some of this out because <laughs> well, I don't know what's what's public and not kind of a thing. But well, um, I mean, the, they're the, trying to reduce the um, the workforce. You're right, exactly. And so I didn't know that's how public that yeah, is. Yeah, I um, uh, I I'm not. I, I think they're in the middle of selecting the vendors that are going to produce all the individual parts for the car. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that's going well. Like probably cannot go well um, but because then that becomes a whole political mess but at the end of the day they the teams cannot design or build any of their own bespoke parts they right. have to buy everything quote-unquote off the shelf from a, an approved vendor yep. and that is eliminating all these crazy R&D which to me that's kind of neutering motorsports because that's from a techie well, nerd the, standpoint that's the beauty of it if is you think about the history of this sport right that's what it was built it, on <laughs> it is run what you brung kind of a thing and right. it was you know for the first uh, decades of this uh, really in the several decades if you will of the sport I mean people were their their creativity of what they could get away with and, yep. and design was and and that's how the sport functioned yep. you know that it's in the DNA of how the sport operates. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. There's a lot changing. I mean, you have, they've had to deal with a lot of change in the last, I mean, they've, they started with the, uh, the chase. They've got the charter that's completely changed the, uh, who, who's even in the, yep. the show. Mm -hmm. It's modified how the dollars are divided. It has provided a more leverage, if you will, for the teams mm -hmm. in that conversation. But the nature of how motorsports is structured relative to the stick and ball sports, it's entirely different. It's, yep. it, it is, you know, probably you couldn't be more different. No, well, yep. you, you don't have um, like the the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball. It is it is truly thirty or thirty two, however, depending on the league. It's a round table of equal people mm -hmm. dividing the dollars equally with whereas with uh, with motorsports with NASCAR or with IndyCar now with mm -hmm. um, Roger Penske it is a mom and pop business if you will a family-owned business it's, right. granted there's a lot of zeros at the end of that yep. mom and popdom of it but it is an individually held organization and it's almost like um, 
the the teams are invited to a party, if you will, yep. and they're participants. And and so when you have that type of economic model, it's it just it brings with it advantages and disadvantages, but it's it's an entirely different animal. Yep. Yeah, I I mean you've been in it longer than I have, but from what I've seen, there's no equilibrium in it. Where when when it was a booming economy and there wasn't as many options from an entertainment standpoint and money was falling from the sky from, you know, ninety eight to oh five, you know, call it whatever you want, the model was fantastic and everyone was making crazy money. And now with all the different options, money isn't falling from the sky. There's no um, there's no equilibrium. Like the base is, is going to be hard and it's coming fast. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, on the negative side, you know, I think, um, you know, at the end of this year, there's going to be quite a, a displacement of people. Um, and I think that's unfortunate, but on the flip side of that, I think that's a huge opportunity because everyone knows it's coming that's involved with it. And I think other industries are going to be able to thrive and benefit from those, that talent being out there yep. because the people that probably are going to be looking for a job, they have skills that not a lot of people have. Yes. And I've always been a huge proponent that. Um, if you're an engineer at a race team, you can be an, an engineer pretty much wherever, what industry needs it. Like whether you're, you know, making widgets or you're designing biopharmal stuff in up in Raleigh, like it's endless. And, um, and in the grand scheme of things, backing up even further, like, you know, our kids, our kids don't have those skills. They're probably never going to have those skills. So there's definitely a market for that, um, especially if you look at the applied um, or additive manufacturing corridor that's being developed between Georgia Tech and um, you know UNC up north here. You know this is kind of becoming like the place for all these new 3D printing companies to pop up. And again, very specialized brains that need to be assigned to that, but they're all here. They're just doing something else. Right. So on one side, it's going to be kind of shitty, but I think on the other side, I think they're going to land on their feet pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's just my take on it. But yep, I don't disagree. Yep, yep. So. This episode of Dump the Clutch is brought to you by Muddy Creek Experiential. Nestled in the Piedmont of North Carolina, Muddy Creek has been creating custom experience-based marketing and hospitality solutions for the past twenty years. Ensure that your next sports or entertainment investment is properly activated by the experts at Muddy Creek. Check them out on Facebook and Instagram at Muddy Creek Experiential. And now, back to Dump the Clutch. Do you, do you follow wrestling at all? Not really. The business of professional wrestling is fascinating because they... The McMahon the, and the XFL? Yeah. Well, not watching that. Well, that and the way they... Um, their business model works in wrestling and they own everything and and they don't look at themselves as a professional wrestling organization they look at a content creation and they have all these different pipes that they fill and all those pipes are social media and you know they have a billion people on social media you know aggregate um, they're valued more than the dallas cowboys and they're not having a good year like no, they're massive that's new to me. but they're the business model yeah. of the wwe is um, it's amazing. Well, their amazing. athletes are independent contractors, just that's like right. motorsports. Yep. So in that sense, I mean, they're yep. 
where in motorsports it's a hired shoe. I mean, in yeah. in these are entertainers. Yep. And um, I always thought like um, the wrestlers are pretty dialed into the creative side of it as well, and they know how to make a crowd react a certain way. Uh-huh. But there was also other people intermixed in the storylines when they would go out in the crowd. Um, I, you know, Eric Bischoff was, was one, he was a personality, but he was also behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. but he would go, always go out with Hulk Hogan and he would hold the microphone while Hulk Hogan would cut his promo while he was holding the microphone. I would always watch him and he was scanning the audience, looking and reading all the signs and Mm -hmm. seeing like, are there kids here? Are there old people? Like he, it was just as much data as he can suck in Uh and then they would tweak the storyline accordingly. And that, that's the beauty of what they do because it's all scripted. Mm -hmm. They could change it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And, and I think in NASCAR, you can change a narrative tomorrow. It might take a little while to get traction, but there's still legitimacy that NASCAR needs to hold up to, which is also interesting now that they've just announced a gaming partner with Penn National. Oh yeah, I saw that. Who also just bought? Are they an insurance company? Uh, uh Penn Gaming. I'm sorry, Penn Gaming. Okay. Um, so they also bought. I was gonna say, I write my insurance checks to those people. <laughs> <laughs> they bought like thirty or forty percent of Barstool Sports. Yep, I did see that. Which. Barstool also has a relationship with NASCAR. Actually, the other way around, because NASCAR pays them to bring their audience. Uh-huh. And um, to me, that's a pretty smart move. Mm-hmm. I wish Good collaboration. I wish NASCAR would have. Well, that's a whole different thing. But the way Barstool is approaching sports and media and distribution, that to me is the new model. Mm-hmm. And what they sold for validates the fact that that's the, that's the, the direction, direction it's going. It's and based on their sell to Penn, their company is valued at $400 million. He started it 17 years ago writing a, a blog on, on sports betting. So you say there's hope for me? I think there's hope for everybody. <laughs> but the, they are shining a light on themselves. So the people that are recording podcasts, the people that are writing blogs and shooting video, they're becoming characters as well. Mm-hmm. And they're getting so involved in the sports that they love that they're mirroring the consumers that are watching that and they're creating this totally authentic groundswell of people and sports fans and now they have this huge audience and now they're starting to do cut the deals on the side to bring in the nascars of the world to start introducing their audience to new sports new opportunities Uh, pen they own the casino like at kansas motor speedway but they own like 30 or 40 properties, like physical properties. So there's going to be a bar stool, um, um, sports book, branded thing. Like, yeah. it, ju- it makes a ton of sense on paper. Mm-hmm. And like, like just yesterday, uh, I had a buddy here and, you know, although it got rained out till today, but I've never bet on anything. I'm just not a betting person. He had DraftKings, I think it was DraftKings, the app. Yeah, and he's like, okay, and he bets a lot. He's like, okay, who's your pick for the for Daytona? He's like, give me seven your top seven drivers. So I gave him names, and he put it in, and then they got twenty laps. But the, he was getting updates per lap on where he was placed against someone else he was betting against. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh shit! Like I've always talked about it, and I understand the concept of it, but I never did it. And yesterday I did it for the first time, and I was like, I'm watching every lap now, yeah. and data supports that. Yeah. 
So what what is your opinion? Well, now in, you're invested, and there's now, some now level you're invested. of risk, right? So you know? what are you for gambling against it? Is it kind of like a? I, um, you know, I haven't really thought about being for or against it. I think it's going to bring uh, a ton of dollars to the industry because it's been, you know, so heavily regulated and prohibited here. Mm-hmm. Um, in other parts of the world, I think it's uh, open and they, it's permitted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there could be some interesting scandals that come out of it uh, because of the uh, easing up on those regulations. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess from me, I the, the word is still out. I, I I don't know whether yep. it would be good or bad. I, I know it'll bring another revenue stream to yep. the industry yep. that is looking for new revenue streams. Yeah, um, I mean, because so even pre-legalization of it, pick a sport, they had a major scandal with gambling. Right. Every every one of them. Right. And multiples. But, you know, everyone has their crown jewel of like, oh, my God, look what happened. You know, but the guy in the NBA, the, re- the uh, referee yep. fixing games. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is bad, yes. But I just, uh, I'm, I'm a little concerned that now that it's legal and there's even more eyeballs on it and more money being changed hands, yeah. money always fucks shit up. Yeah. Always, always, always. So it's going to be that much harder to regulate. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I know you from a sanctioning body, you have to go through the right steps and processes and the right people in place to make sure that stuff doesn't happen but it's always going to happen well yes to a certain extent well i mean look at well look at the oh my goodness from a couple years ago oh waltrip yeah mike waltrip yeah i mean that was that 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 to me fiasco and i mean so every sport is gonna have i mean it's or i mean it, it to that for that matter, I mean, with the Astros, with with their cheating, I mean, who knows that people might not have been betting on those types of scenarios, and I'm not saying that, so <laughs> for those of you who are listening, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not accusing anybody of anything, yeah. but what I'm saying is, you know, cheating has been going on for centuries right. in sports, you and, know, and so it's, it's like, how do you catch it, you know? But I'm not up to speed on the rules of Major League Baseball. But is there a rule in there saying you you can't steal signs? And then I think that, you know obviously the the big no no was. Um, so, I mean I think there's probably a, a you know moral people issue. were people were wearing something underneath their jersey that was tapping <laughs> yeah. them. But yeah. then I thought I also read that uh, there was um, someone in the outfield with a drum Banging on a trash can. Yeah. And. Um, and racing, you know, there's gray area for days of what is and isn't in the book. And you pay people to figure out what the middle ground is. Um, bicycle racing, you know, electric motor in the down tube connected to the crank in yeah. bicycle racing. Yeah. Um, and that's just doping the equipment, not necessarily the people. And then the athletes is a whole other conversation. Right. So I, I think that's only going to get more crazy. You're never going to get rid of people wanting to... Yeah skirt the system but okay so so we think the same on that but then do you think that's what makes sports even great greater because the fact that it is so based in human behavior and 
We love to build people up. We love even more to tear people down and then we love to build them back up again. Does that add to the story? I mean, I think the, the, the appeal to me about sports, it is, is it truly was and remains one of the, the first and continuous reality TV shows. Yep, you know, that's a good I way mean, to put it. Yep. And you can't, it's, it's air quotes here, unpredictable. And I think once you, I mean, boxing went through, I think a lot of this, um, to where when things became fixed, people got mad and started walking away from it. So mm-hmm. there's, there, there is some element of, uh, uncertainty that people that attracts people to watch things. So I, I think that governing bodies of sports in general, regardless of whether it's motorsports or boxing or horse racing or any of that, mm-hmm. um, they they have to put some sort of regulations and controls in place because once people once fans get an idea in their head or have a perception that it is staged or fake, it takes a lot of the authenticity out of the competition itself. And people want to be entertained. I mean, if if they want to go to a show, they'll go to a concert. And and we were talking earlier about the WWE. I mean, maybe people do go to be entertained by the Uh acrobatics and antics of those... um, um, individuals and their athletes but I think when you're talking about motorsports or when you're talking about basketball or baseball there is some level of expectation that the fans have that there will be an authentic fight if you will competition you know um, striving of one team against the other that's not already the outcome isn't already planned at the end you know so I think that because once you start messing with that model or messing with that expectation, people get turned off. Yeah. And I think it's the thirst for characters too. And mm-hmm. especially in sports, if you get a character like Tim Richmond, you get a character like Michael Jordan, um, Shaquille O'Neal, um, you know, when you get someone that's really good at what they do physically and they have a personality and they have this like great... Me. With, exactly. With academics. Mary Beth Chambers. <laughs> um, when you have that combination, which doesn't come around a lot, that's when you have a superstar. I think that's where racing falls short um, because they they may have great personalities, but I, I think there's still this inherent fear that they have to watch what they say based on their sponsors mm-hmm. and, I don't and their brand's all. beliefs. Yep. Um, but that's where you have to find the right sponsor. I know it sounds super um, easy, but we do work now for a brand that they're heavily involved in motorsports and NASCAR. Their driver, not a lot of people like, and they love it. Like when they hear the booing, they love it. But that's a match made in heaven. That's mm-hmm. that's what you have to find. And um, I think getting back to the point of it being real, even wrestling is real, meaning that the storylines are real. Mm-hmm. They're fabricated storylines, but there's people acting them out. There's humans acting them out. You know, like when I was a little boy growing up, comic books, Superman. You want mm-hmm. the you want to have these people cheer for you. Mm-hmm. And now I th- I still think Disney is like the best in almost every experiential mm-hmm. category that Disney. ever existed. 
But, you know, you have the, you know, Mickey Mouse is walking around with people with costumes on. And then you have actual characters that are, you know, wearing their costume, but you can see their face. Mm-hmm. But they're trained when they're in Disneyland on the grounds. They're in character. They cannot right. break char- character. Yep. So, um, but again, with whether you're, you know, two years old or 80 years old and you experience that, whether it's a Disneyland character or your favorite sports celebrity... Um, those are the interactions that people will kill for. And when they have it, they will never forget it, mm-hmm. like ever forget it. And that's hard to quantify when you're selling sponsorship. Because I know we both have bled for teams to try and you know have them write a check of any size to fund a motorsports team. But that that's a very real a barrier that we have to overcome and tell that story. Well, until people have really, the, the, the difficulty happens because sponsorship is such an abstract idea. Yep. And the fact that you're trying to sell something to somebody that doesn't understand. Well, I'll give you an example. When Matt and I walked into Daytona, one of the, we raced at Daytona. Mm-hmm. Walking into Daytona as a competitor was just awesome. It was really mind-boggling, thinking, holy crap, I'm actually walking in, and there's my car right there. I mean, talk about peacock feathers flying, you know. Granted, uh, you know, our performance wasn't necessarily that great, (laughs) but I think we ended up running on caution for at least half the race because (laughs) of crap that was going on. But... um, but those types of experiences, people don't forget, you know. And but how do you how do you put a price tag on that, or how do you even explain to somebody what that feeling is, or how helping people understand these are the connections that you can build if you are uh, bringing your customers because there's a rapport that you have because they're they're um they're building relationships you're building trust you're building collaboration you're building you know um goodwill and all of these ideas that are intangible and because of that like i said it's hard to put a price tag on those types of things um they are outcome that you can put a price tag on the outcomes Mm -hmm. because the outcomes come in the form of you know, more products sold or a greater audience of fill in the blank of whatever you're trying to um, sell. They come in the form of new ideas because now you have a new business partner here that you met at a motorsports event that you didn't know or didn't have. And so it's, it's really difficult to put price tags on those types of ideas because of how abstract they are. Yep. Yeah. And like I mean, this was ways ago, so I, I I can I can tell who it was. But when I was at GMR, we did work for Bank of America. Uh-huh. When they got back into racing, they're the title sponsor of the racetrack, the Bank of America 500, the fall race in um, Charlotte. And um, at that time, they contracted us to build a mobile hospitality suite. And so right now at Charlotte, there is that permanent building that is um, at pit entrance, just on the other side of pit wall. It's like mm-hmm. a yeah. fairly good sized building with an upper deck. And uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. So prior to that, that was a trailer. That was a, a double expandable trailer with a bar in it. And we had you know tables and chairs set up. 
Um, but within the first year, uh, word got back to us that um, Bank, of America, Bank of America hosted high wealth customers at mm-hmm. a race. One of their bank reps was talking with one of the guests and based on their conversation at the track, that turned into a couple more follow-up conversations and the guy was like looking for funding for a hotel. That happened, they got his business and just that transaction alone, and I don't know even what it's paid off now, like it paid for the whole program in year one. Right. So um, that's one customer. That's one customer, right. one brand, one event. Not even a full weekend. It was like four hours. <laughs> so, but again, those are the things that it's hard to capture on a spreadsheet. Um, and and that's why you know you What's mentioned the difference between quantitative and qualitative research. Quant and qual, big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so that almost begs the question. And you mentioned um, digitally native mm-hmm. esports. With the rise of esports, because there's a lot of commonalities with motorsports, and I think still esports is kind of the wild, wild west, like mm-hmm. motorsports was. Yep. Because it is so digitally tied, literally, and you can have captures digitally captured. You could have interactions digitally. You can have you can trace paths how they got to a Twitch stream and then where they went after the Twitch stream. So in theory, you can start to track sales down to the unit and not theoretical. Mm-hmm. You can tap into the audiences of the athletes and their personal followings you know, digitally as yep. well. And because it's native to digital, you can capture all that data. Right. And, and data is, is still a um, major buzzword, totally sought after. I still don't think a lot of marketers know what they're doing with it, you know, you know minus you know, Coke, Pepsi, Anheuser-Busch, P&G, Johnson Johnson, everyone else has no idea what they're doing with it. I think they're well, experimenting with they're it. They're learning. I, I went to, being the digital immigrant that I am, <laughs> that's the technical term. I'm a digital immigrant. My yeah. children are digital natives. Yeah. But I went to the digital summit here in Charlotte this past fall. Oh, cool. And the amount of... Uh, information I learned was mind-boggling about what's what's the people that are doing it well it's unbelievable what people are able to do with digital and it's coming to where your your point earlier everybody's got their opportunity to develop a podcast and create their own audience I mean truly digital um, this this digital age is giving the individual human being with a computer and an internet connection, the opportunity to be their own entrepreneur and yep. start and make their own that forge their own destiny, you yep. know? And so when, when companies, when sports teams can aggregate those influencers who are having fun with it and building an authentic audience and all this wonderful stuff, they have the ability to capture those uh, people as well. I mean, with motorsports and with, you have situations like iRacing to where you can actually race the actual drivers. You know, you have, you can't do that in basketball. You can't do that in baseball. Or at least, you know, not in a true authentic way. You know, you can't have 75,000 people on the ball field with, Mm -hmm. um, Fill in the blank, you know, athletes or whomever. But you can do that. You can have however many people racing 
uh, William Byron, for example, you know, and so, um, so there are certain parts of motorsports and the fact that it has been very, um, uh, what's the word engineering based and computer and data. I mean, it lends itself to that type of environment as well. Yep. I watch esports enough where I'm just educating myself. I don't watch it as a fan uh-huh. because I think the experience that I've seen on TV, like when they do broadcast it uh, on TV every once in a while, and it's like a first-person shooter game, and they go to the 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 view of the first-person shooter, it's super hard to. It moves too fast. It's just hard to follow. Yeah. Um, and they're using lingo that I have no clue. Like, I mean, I I played You're Doom. Digital immigrant. You want to understand? I know. But <laughs> I I played Doom when I was in high school, which uh-huh. was the, like the, one of the original first-person shooters, and I understand why people like it. Yeah. Um, and I understand the team aspect of it of playing together um and and not only playing together like you know it's me and my buddy next door playing someone in you know yugoslavia that's cool but it doesn't matter what i think because if you look at the audience they are they're a top 10 sport in the world now they esports in general Mm -hmm. Uh, you know there's there's a lot of different titles and game manufacturers and platforms and stuff but when you look at the the totality of the people that participate in gaming it's in the hundreds of millions right and um well it's something that people like normal joe schmo exactly correct with right i don't have to be the next jimmy johnson or Haley deegan in a race car with cubic dollars in order to be able to be a a motorsport all i need again is a computer and an internet connection and for the most part and i can participate yep i think that's exactly correct and and you know it's like dunking a basketball you know one in 300 people can do that whatever the number is Mm -hmm. but anyone can pick up a a a digital you know gun and and shoot something you know anyone can do that i still suck at that but (laughs) hey Um, okay, so what? Um, so you're no, you were at Belmont Abbey for seven or eight years. Seven, yep. And then, so explain what you're doing now. Like, how is your oh, career evolving, and what are you involved with now? Uh, well, it's been fun since May. Uh, well, yeah, since August, really. The opportunity came around in May, but I have been at Pfeiffer University. Is um, like Belmont Abbey in that it's a um, small private liberal arts school outside of Charlotte. Mm-hmm. We are uh, about forty miles from downtown. Uh, is the under undergraduate campus, and um, so I oversee their sport management program. So it was a job uh, promotion, uh, a career move for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, in addition, uh, Pfeiffer is. Uh, bringing on board a uh, sport management graduate program, a master's program. And um, they had gotten the, so when you, when you're a CPA or when you're a doctor, you have to have certain credentials and pass certain exams. Mm -hmm. Universities are no different. They have to have um, accreditation by an accrediting body. So they had gotten the accreditation um, passed um, by the time I showed up. And then, um, so I was hired to bring that accreditation uh, program, if you will, to life. And so I've uh, been working to um, build that curriculum Mm -hmm. since August. 
It's going to be a um, seated program. We will have 15 to 20 graduate students. Um, it, the, the premise of it is very hands-on. It's applied learning. It's project-based learning. So for the curriculum, each class is going to have a project to where the students will be able to build a portfolio of work. So the, by the time they're done, they have a, this is what I've done in my classes, yep. and this is what I can do for you, story mm -hmm. to tell. Um, part of the curriculum involves a domestic trip as well as a trip overseas, which is exciting. Yep. Um, we're going to be, my, my Olympic curiosities, uh, basically I've, I've had an opportunity since August to have fun building um, the type of education I would have liked to have had. Um, when I graduated with my undergrad, um, people didn't tell me how the system worked, if you will. Yep. And I told myself, if I'm ever in a position to show somebody what it's really like, I'm going to do that. And it's really a philosophy of how I teach. And so um, I've started um, reaching out to some people in town that I know uh, also believe in um, reaching out and giving back to the next generation, if you will, have a curiosity about education. Um, these folks are going to be part of what I'm calling an industry council. So it'll be about 10, maybe 15 individuals, um, but they are uh, discipline experts, they are practitioners, um, they are people from sports teams here in town, sports organizations. Yep. I'm not necessarily in a position quite to start talking about that right now. Yeah. Um, ask me back in about a month. And but I, I think the key thing you said is you you want to build something like you wish you had when yep. you... So that, and I think that's probably where we get along because I'm, I'm the same way. I, yes. Like, I love drag racing. But that was about it. I loved cars, mm -hmm. loved cars. But I never in a million years thought I would end up working in professional sports ever. And I just didn't even know what that path looked like. Yep. And so it sounds like the program you're building is going to be for people that have already figured that out. But then yes. they're looking to take the next, next step, step. Yep. to cap off their you know their school schooling career. Yes. And then go work for a professional team. Right. I see this program as providing a service to multiple stakeholders, if you will, yep. uh, to the students in that we're providing them opportunities to gain life experience as well as providing them opportunities to um, get a job in sports. Mm -hmm. um, what, whereas, obviously, you can't guarantee things because at some level the person has to take ownership of their own learning and make their opportunity. Mm -hmm. But um, we are the only... Um, master's program in Charlotte and so with as many sport properties and organizations that are here we can provide a service to the industry of finding vetted trained professional passionate people who are qualified to step into some of those roles that an undergraduate student may not necessarily be quite ready for yet yep. um, so we're going to go to the U.S. Olympic Training Center. We're planning on it, I should say, um, as our domestic trip. I've got an uh, executive director of uh, NGB who has agreed to come speak to the group for an example. He's bringing an Olympian with him. He's a member of the U.S. Olympic 
um, and Paralympic Board of Directors. Uh, we'll, we're, if what I think is coming to pass, we'll be staying on site and eating at the training table. Yep. So it's a really fun opportunity to meet and talk with um, people there who are who who can explain how the sport, um, how the Olympic movement is different in the United States relative to the rest of the world because it, it is very different um, in terms of we're the only uh, Olympic governing or Olympic um, US Olympic Committee is the only Olympic Committee that is not funded by the government mm -hmm. in the whole world and so we're going to be going overseas mm -hmm. to London uh, we're going to uh, tour the British Olympic Park uh, or excuse me, Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Uh, we're talking with folks from the British Olympic Association. We're going to be talking with uh, academicians at universities across London who are discipline experts in, in global sports. Mm -hmm. Touring Wimbledon. Um, I, I tried to get a trip to Silverstone in there, but mm -hmm. we just couldn't quite. I mean, <laughs> that would have been really cool, but we ran out of days and. Yeah probably running out of money to do that too so that might be a, a trip down the down the line yeah. because motorsports is different um, yep. from in other countries than it is in the united states um manchester united oh, cool. we're gonna be touring their stadium and talking mm -hmm. to those folks so it's truly a hands-on roll your sleeves up get your hands dirty kind of a uh practical uh the, the people that are uh, wanting to do this are going to be the individuals who are um, wanting an applied opportunity. It's not necessarily probably some that uh, would go on to do a PhD. They could, mm -hmm. certainly, if they wanted to, but this is a practical, hands-on, I want to meet people, build my professional network because I'm sitting eyeball to eyeball with people from across the city of Charlotte. So this is this is a hot topic in this house because my two girls are uh, they're bookending high school. So I have a freshman and I have a senior, uh -huh. and I think that they are being taught in the most traditional way for to be deployed in the most non-traditional world in the history of mankind, <laughs> and how they're being taught, what they're learning, and the cadence that what they're doing at is from 1940. And I, I think yeah. they're doing a disservice. So from your standpoint, and since you have the ability to mold this this curriculum, how often are you going to stop and look at what's going on in the world and then modify what you teach these kids? Is that an annual Hopefully, thing? Perpetually. Good. I mean, okay. yep. that's I think of, that's critical. Part of, the, part of the input that the industry council people will mm -hmm. provide to our program is information on our curriculum, guidance of... Well, you're talking about these are the classes that are part of your curriculum. This is a new thing that we need to be mm -hmm. focusing on, and you need to introduce it into what you're talking about and what mm -hmm. you're teaching. Because, and to some extent, it can be a this is what the industry needs, so they can have a uh, firsthand uh, input into what mm -hmm. those things look like. Mm -hmm. You know how how those concepts get taught and those types of things. So. I mean, the, the point of staying connected to the industry is to be adaptive and flexible to what the industry needs are. 
And do you think, maybe not in year one, but do you think there could be an incub- a sports incubator born out of this where potentially corporate America that are dealing in sports and whatever, you know, wh- whichever side of the table there are, fine. maybe they fund a offshoot of this program to have, you know, young creative minds just go think about stuff. My cell phone number is... <laughs> <laughs> 704 <laughs> no I'm kidding but like yeah absolutely to me that's like the whole point of getting young minds together that to their credit they don't know much which is great because they're not jaded but also giving them a couple rabbits to chase and just let them air it out and see what they come up with and 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 you well, talk about that's that's one of the things that came back to me in one of the classes I've taught at, at in a, a pre-pfeiffer life I had a um sport finance class and I partnered with a team in town they would provide me a, a list of sponsors and um, of folks that they were trying to either learn more about or were looking for new ideas mm-hmm. and because they want a millennial perspective um, they said well see what you come up with and the last year that I last year when I worked on this this past uh, a year ago from now, mm-hmm. uh, I had a, a student group come up to me and said, well, we don't want to do any of these sponsors. We want to do this other one because they're new in the area and the team had never heard of this company. And they said, well, absolutely go for it. So they ended yep. up doing this, basically a 40 page presentation proposal, sponsorship uh, um, idea, completely vetted and researched the company mm-hmm. and, and made it such that they now had a uh, definitive lead that they could follow up on from, and it was from a class, you know? So we provided a value and that's my goal is to provide value to both sides. You know, you're providing value to the students because you're giving them opportunities, real world opportunities to learn and grow, make connections, but you're also giving opportunities to the sports organizations to learn from these millennials and also um, you know, again, you're providing the opportunity for them to meet these people and groom them to join their organizations. Yep. Yep. And, you know, in, I almost think the, the millennial age demographic from a size standpoint is the biggest. Um, but people are already talking about, yeah, like Gen Z, (laughs) like, like millennial They're So a young millennial now is like late twenties and, um, late 20s by then they've already developed a lot of spending habits and behaviors that so now it's like so my kids are gen z your kids are gen z you guys are your kids are young gen z but still like what's the next generation look like and so it's this constant like i still think that one of the better from a quasi motorsports standpoint it's more entertainment but failed motorsports Mm -hmm. um i've heard i think it was their cmo i wasn't there live but i saw it on um, a video he wakes up every morning thinking about how he could sell more tickets to parents of 12-year-olds. Yeah. 12-year-old boys and yeah. girls. Once that goes away, Feld will die. So that's like his goal <laughs> is to fill the stands with 12-year-old kids. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what year it is, it's 12 years old. And I thought that was very refreshing because um, obviously a lot of sanctioning bodies have a lot of segments are trying to entertain and target and trying to either keep going or bring on. 
but man, that was laser focused. And what they do is pure entertainment. There's, you know, technically there's a competition like with monster trucks, but not really. Yeah. It's just, it's a character. It's a bit back to video games and yeah. cartoons. But um, I, th- I thought it was really good the way they were segmenting themselves and they were, they were laser targeted on who they're going after. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I th- I'm glad you answered it like that because I think that's, that's key. You, you, like stuff changes so fast now, regardless of what you're talking about. And if you don't change what you're teaching people, man, you're going to outdate yourself the second you don't. Right. Like the second you don't. Yes. And um, I love educating myself. I love reading. I hate books because the second they're printed, it's almost out of date. Yeah. You know, so um, it's, uh, I'd, again, it's a hot topic in this house and I have very <laughs> different well, viewpoints. Yeah, but. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, a lot needs to change with um, how kids are educated in terms of, I think that at times the teachers unfortunately are constrained by regulations. Um, Kids are being taught to a test as opposed to taught information. Because the teachers are being graded, not necessarily the kids. They're being, (laughs) yeah, they're being, the, the teachers are their their evaluation and their pay is connected to not necessarily how well the students learn it is connected to how the students perform on the bubble test yep. and if you so people learn visually they learn hearing things they learn by writing I'm I mean I'm a student myself I'm finishing my PhD mm-hmm. and I am learning how I internalize and be able to spit out information and if I'm somebody that if you put a piece of paper and a pencil in my hand and told me to write and I can't write, then that's I'm, I'm going to have a problem taking that test. Right. However, if you take that same exact person and say, okay, Brad, tell me now everything that you know about motorsports. You could tell me everything that you know, and you know it, but mm-hmm. you have to deliver it by giving me an oral presentation and not one in writing. And mm-hmm. so when, when children are forced to take a test in a way that hinders their ability to show what they learn, I have a mm-hmm. problem with that, which yep. is why with with the teaching that I do personally in my own classes, we do presentations, we do bubble tests, we do uh, you know written, we, there's a variety because somebody might tank the bubble test but they're going to make up for it mm-hmm. on the other way. And yep. so and so it'll help them to take the bubble test, but they'll be able to show really show what they know in other forms. Yep. And I think that you know when 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 kids are are forced into a certain way of learning um, it is it, it channels their thinking so that by the time I see them when they are uh, college age it hinders their ability to, they've, they've well, I, I hope I'm not making any teachers mad in here. That's <laughs> no, okay, we, this, we already but, have. <laughs> but, I mean, unfortunately, people's question, ability to question is squashed because mm-hmm. there is no question, this is the answer, period. Mm-hmm. It's my answer, it's, well, not necessarily my answer, it's the answer that's on this test. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the answer. Yep. And so I have to spend the first year or if not two teaching people 
how to ask questions. I have to teach them, uh, we, we talk about how to communicate, how to give elevator speeches, for yep. example. Yep. How do you introduce yourself? Because, because I think that have those skill sets. The other interesting thing that's happening is I think education will dis will get disrupted, but not because they want to disrupt themselves. You have Facebook, Amazon, Google, Tesla, like these massive companies, and they're public saying, I don't care where you went to school. Don't tell me about your degree because I don't care. If here's the job we need to solve or the problem we need to solve, can you solve it? And show me how you can solve that. And that's how they're approaching their workforce. And that, in turn, will force bubble tests to get blown up mm -hmm. if people really are passionate about well, it'll, it'll force education to have to redefine how it assesses people and right. how it how it produces. Uh, uh, goes back to that whole accreditation stuff that I was telling yep. you about, because because I sit here and tell you that I am a college professor and I teach people things. Mm -hmm. The accrediting body then says, OK, prove it. Show me that you have changed this person and and demonstrated knowledge acquisition and there is it will force education to redefine how it benchmarks itself right right yeah i and that's my academic geekdom there sorry <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah i um because uh, i my, myself growing up I, I was not a traditional learner at all i I was a C student at best, and I hated college. I'm the only person I know that hated college. Um, I was an only child, and my parents always worked. Um, they owned a business. I worked in the business. I was always around adults. So, like, drinking beer at a fraternity was, like, the last thing I wanted to do. I just thought that was just lame. But it, but I was grown up a different way. I was brought up a different way. So, But I got penalized for that. And um, through the system, the system told me I was stupid. And, and that's, that's where if you don't hit a certain grade, the system indirectly tells you you're stupid. Like the, the school my kids go to, like 4.2 is not honors. Like you have to get above a 4.2 to even get on the bottom end of the honors roll, which is ridiculous. And I remember my senior class, we had 640 some students and they would rank you. Like they're in, they're indirectly saying, here's the smart ones, here's the medium ones, here's the dumb ones. And I, th I think that's just wrong. That's yeah. <laughs> just, well, I, th I, I think that in that sense, it, they say, here are the ones that have learned how to take our tests. Here right. are the ones that kind of figured it out. Here are the rule followers. And here are <laughs> the wild hairs that are right. going to go make. But again, it's like in his and, and history shows the people at the bottom are usually the ones being the bosses of the history at the top eventually. And, um, uh -oh. you know, it's, I'm in trouble then. it's this, it's this, <laughs> the Steve Jobs mentality, yeah. you know, when, you know, I forget it was the Apple commercial that he created uh -huh. with, uh, with, I think it was Wonderman, you know, but he's like the crazy people are the ones that actually change stuff. Uh -huh. And I, I, I love thinking like that and, and whether, it's me working for a company or me talking to you like and getting back to my earlier point if you can't make people think differently or make them say huh never thought of that like that's that to me is like my oxygen i love doing that mm -hmm. because then that like even today before you came i got an, a note from someone that i worked with uh like 18 years ago and because i did one thing for him 
he still remembers that and he he set time aside and he's like i can't thank you enough and and that to me like and that's the person that notified me like what about the people that i've come across or you've come across especially you in a mm-hmm. formal classroom setting that you affect their lives and you know just it could be one thing you said or one thing you did or you know over a course of things and it just changes the trajectory of it that's well, the fun part now is I've been doing this long enough that some of my students I'm now working with. Oh, that's that cool. Are professionals in, in in Charlotte here. So yeah. it's really a lot of fun. <laughs> I know. Well, I interviewed Ian. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I've been in motorsports for like 10 years. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it, time flies. It just, it's pretty wild. Yeah. So. Um, Thanks for coming. I want you to come back. Let's, I want you to be one of my re- recurring guests. Oh, good. <laughs> and you, I, I and you need to test today. Huh? And you need to start your own podcast too. Yep. Especially with with your uh, your your new um, I endeavors. I'm very excited to do that. So yeah. You're teaching me a lot. So. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yep.